so I was working at a Canadian Mennonite school, as one does when one's living in Lithuania. And <laughs> what? I know. When I describe this story, it sounds like word salad. I mean, I, I could speak a little Lithuanian at that time. Don't ask me to now. All I can say is negulu kalbitili tuvishkai or something like that, right? Wait, what does that mean? It means I don't speak Lithuanian. <laughs> uh, oh. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so... What Americans imagine a European nude beach is like is not what a European nude beach is like. It is full of elderly people who are also cold. Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Doc? What, Nina? So we were just talking about your time spent in Eastern Europe when you were but a wee lad, right? Yes. And well, this is topical uh, before I get into talking about it. I wasn't a wee lad, but we'll, we'll, no. talk, we'll, we'll talk about Weer than you are now. Yes. Oh, uh, much more wee. <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit about why we're even talking about this at all? Okay. So just to be serious for a minute, we, we like to have fun on this podcast, but this episode is unfortunately topical. There is a war going on in Ukraine at the moment, and we thought it would be important to discuss the significance of Ukraine on this podcast because this is pop medieval and Ukraine does fall under that purview. But the more important thing to talk about, we could talk about all sorts of things. We could talk about military strategy, logistics, great nations, conflicts, refugee crises. The important thing to really focus on, I think, is me. So let's talk about me instead. (laughs) The only thing anyone really cares about uh, is me. Yes, that's true. All right. So way back in the 1990s, Uh, I was coming out of university and I had studied Soviet Eastern European studies. I majored in English and political science and specialized in Soviet Eastern European studies. Well, Christmas, my senior year of university, the Soviet Union broke apart. So immediately half of my education was irrelevant, was already obsoleted. (laughs) I remember you talking about this in one of our podcasts where one of your professors came in and said, this material has now changed and started passing out new material. The name of the seminar was Soviet Politics. And he said, well, we're now gonna have to rename it post-Soviet Politics. Ah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. And literally (laughs) our textbook was just the newspaper. We had to read the newspaper every day. Anyway, I was really interested in the collapse of the of the Soviet Union. And so I, from a bunch of, I don't want to get into all the details because they're not that interesting how I ended up there. I ended up living in Lithuania in the town of Klaipeda on the Baltic, which is uh, uh, north of Ukraine. And when I got there, I was really surprised by how ignorant I had been about the importance of Lithuania and its history in the Middle Ages and in the early modern era. And so I actually have a, we'll put it in the show notes, uh, a tapestry that I got there. It says Klaipeda Memel 1252. And it's because Klaipeda is the modern name, but at one time it was called Memelberg and it was um, a German city. Uh, The city now, Klaipeda, is about a third Polish, a third Russian, a third Lithuanian, uh, even though it's it's in Lithuania. And Klaipeda has been around since at least 1252. It doesn't surprise me to find out a European city was around for so long. But what I didn't know Mm -hmm. is that the Lithuanians had a huge empire and so did the Poles. And Poland and Lithuania had a joint empire. What does any of this have to do with Ukraine? Well, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania which was really the name of their empire, that starts in the 13th century. So that starts, it really starts, 
I think slightly before the founding of Kalaipeda, uh, the city I lived in. And mm -hmm. they were in a close alliance with Poland. Now that close alliance starts in the 14th century. There's a marriage between the Queen of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania, so that helps a lot. But it doesn't become formalized until the modern era, until 1569. But during this time, they have an unofficial it's not really official, but, you know, marriage makes things pretty official. And they are so huge that they went all the way to the Black Sea and also the Baltic Sea. They stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea. They were the largest empire in Europe at the time. Uh, they controlled most of Ukraine. Question for you real quick before you go on. Why isn't Lithuania making these claims right now? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, and and just to, to break in here right now, uh, we're not, we're not going to go into the ins and outs of the war in Ukraine. We're simply explaining things at a broader level and we are trying to make things a little bit lighthearted because we understand for everyone's mental health it's important to have a distraction from terrible things that are going on in Ukraine at the moment. So please continue. Go ahead, Doc. So I don't doubt that there are probably some Lithuanian nationalists who if they thought they could get away with it would make such a claim. Uh, yeah. But largely Lithuanians have found themselves since this time on the receiving end of things from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, from uh, Russia, uh, etc. So I think a few centuries in the modern era kind of did a lot to stop their imperialist yeah, uh, that's expansion. true. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, they're not the only ones who could make this a similar claim. So, you know, um, Vladimir Putin makes this claim on Ukraine and he says, well, it's the cradle of the Russian people. Kiev Rus, Kiev Rus uh, is the cradle of the Russian people and therefore they're the cradle of our people. So there are people and therefore we should be able to claim them. Your ideology will probably probably not agree with that. But but there you go. Uh, that, that's his claim. Right, yeah. But if we're going to accept that, then the question is, well, why don't the Lithuanians claim they have held Ukraine? And it's not just the Lithuanians. I mentioned the Poles. The Poles did it sometimes have parts of it, but more of it was held by them. And of course, the 13th century is a really big time for Ukraine because not only do they deal with the Lithuanians and they have sometimes these border fights with the Byzantines and things, a mm -hmm. complicated relationship with the Byzantines. Oh, the Mongols, the Golden Horde uh, in uh, the 13th century comes and doesn't just take over basically all of Russia, but all, uh, all the way in through Hungary. And that includes, includes Lithuania. So in the Middle Ages, Ukraine has had all, all many, many, many different people groups that were there. Uh, many who have laid claim to it. And so the they're unique in the same way that a lot of other European nations are in that they're unique in that they're a mix of all sorts of different people groups that have been there. Their particular mix is their own particular mix in the same way that Moldova's will be different. Uh, the Lithuanians have a different one, uh, mm -hmm. so forth and so on. So yeah, um, if you're interested in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, I have a lot of friends in Lithuania who would love to tell you all about it. It mm -hmm. was this huge empire. It controlled basically all of Central Europe with the Poles in the later Middle Ages. They were really in charge of things. And, and to be truthful, their main rivals at one point were really just the Mongols. Interesting. And I, I think what to take from this, and this might be a little bit glib, but there's a lot of different countries that 
either don't exist or exist in smaller capacities that could claim territory and land to other countries in Europe, maybe that doesn't hold water. I mean, it doesn't hold water. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a category era that as modern people after the early 20th century, after World War One, we we misunderstand things sometimes. You know, um, a lot of what we think of as this country or that country, even 150 years ago, was a bunch of different countries. One of my favorite pop culture references to this is there's a scene, I might have mentioned it before in Pop Medieval, there's a scene on in the first season of Downton Abbey in which one of the characters has gotten herself into some sort of scandal and is afraid she can't marry. And because of this, I forget Maggie Smith's character, but uh, one of the older uh, women says... She's just Maggie Smith. Yes, Maggie Smith <laughs> says, uh, well, why don't you just find an Italian prince for her to marry? That's what Italian princes are for. And it's a reminder that in the early 20th century, you know, Italy still is not like a country, right? After the mm -hmm. fall of the Roman Empire, it's still a bunch of little different places. And when you start to look around what we think about as this is a country, and that's still a complicated question. And so to say, oh, Ukraine in the Middle Ages is in a sense like saying Italy or saying Russia. Russia isn't a thing in the Middle Ages. It's a bunch of different things. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Ukraine is a bunch of different things. Lithuania is just like they are today. So these are very, very complicated histories. If you want to make a claim, a territorial claim over another country in Europe, you can almost for sure find a justification for that. Problem is, others can also cherry pick their own to make one over you as well. This is very true, yeah. So you wanted to talk about Olga of Kiev. Yes, Olga of Kiev. So one of the folks who's very involved in the Discord channel, who has a username I don't want to say <laughs> on the podcast. We're going G-rated for this Yes, podcast. this is a G-rated <laughs> one, yes. Uh, although it might be not G-rated for violence once I talk about Olga of Kiev. So Olga oh, okay. is a 10th century saint. We're not 100% certain when she was born. We actually have quite a wide range of dates when she would have been born. As early as, say, like 890. And some people put her as late as like 925, which I think is absurd. But I've, I've heard people make this kind of claim for her birth. When I say it's absurd, it's not super crazy. But so we'll, we'll just put her as being born roughly around 900. And she dies in 969 because by that time she's super famous and we know about her. And she is today known because she is a saint in both the Eastern and the Western Church. So if you're Eastern Orthodox, uh, Olga is one of your saints. And if you're Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, she's also one of your saints. And she's a very important saint. She's often called an equal to the apostles in her attempts to... Uh, wow. Yes, I, I know. Like that's, It's an amazing <laughs> okay. uh, and, and very bold, very bold uh, uh, claim about her. Okay. However, she has an interesting backstory, which I'm sure is right up your alley. So... <laughs> listening so ukraine at the time there's another people called the uh drevlians and the drevlians are another slavic people group if they're around today they'd have a pretty good claim on ukraine themselves uh but as you'll hear they're not for reasons that we'll get into so olga she marries and becomes a princess here and has a child. Her family, her husband, and the, their whole line has a complicated relationship with the Drevlians. Sometimes the Drevlians are their allies. Sometimes the Drevlians pay tribute to them. They're all, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And so one day her husband is out and he's in part of the back and forth with the Drevlians. He's decided he's going to collect tribute and the Drevlians don't like this. And so they kill him. Mm -hmm. Well, Prince Mal, uh, M-A-L, Prince Mal of the Drevlians. So this is a, a 945. So Prince Mal decides, well, he's going to 
he's going to try to marry Olga and unite everything under himself, right? So he sends a group of important people of the Drevlians to, I think it's about 20 people of the top folks, to Olga, to Kiev, to say, hey, uh, I killed your husband, but uh, you want to marry me instead? And Wow. Well, you know... You got to respect a guy who's who's bold like that, you know. This is a hashtag nice guy, I'm yeah. guessing. <laughs> I don't think he ever okay. got the hashtag nice guy. <laughs> no, but. And so she says, this is a really, this is a really welcome proposal to me. And so tomorrow, why don't you all come up to the castle? And so in the night, they dig a big pit in the castle. And when the important entourage comes up to the castle... <laughs> They throw them in the pit and bury them alive, thus killing them. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm picturing them, like, pulling a giant crank, like a lever for a crank, and then just falling through, like, in cartoons, you know? Yeah, yeah there's something which I've never understood quite how it worked. They're actually carrying a boat somehow. Why they're carrying their boat mm-hmm. up to the castle, I'm not clear on. Layout of everything there and why they wouldn't have seen this. They actually, I think, fall in with the boat. Uh, that they came in. But anyway, they get buried alive. So bad news for them. Uh, Damn, yeah. Now, but she's not done. So... There's more. There's more. Of course, Prince Mal doesn't know that this has happened. So she sends some messengers back to Prince Mal and says, Oh my gosh, Prince Mal. This is such a great proposal. I love it. Let's unite. Uh, But I need a bigger entourage to come bring me to you. So... Please send more people for your entourage, for the entourage to carry me back. Well, Mal is like, great, my proposal worked, and I'm going to unite everyone here, and the Drevlians will be in charge. And so, so he sends another entourage up there to join, so that she can have a big entourage. Not knowing the first group died, she had a lot of luggage. Yes, and so, well, he's not with them. He doesn't come to this, and so they're there when they arrive. She says, oh, you all must be tired and dirty from your trip. Why don't you have a bath? We have a bathhouse. As a good hostess, she invites them into the bathhouse and they all go after their long journey, weary to clean up in the bathhouse to present themselves. And when they all get in the bathhouse, she locks them in and burns it up and burns them all alive. Oh my God, this is awesome. I thought this was going to take another turn. Have you seen the original I Spit on Your Grave? I saw the original I Spit on Your Grave in beta so you're gonna have beta max that is for for those young people who don't know what in beta means in this case it doesn't mean the first cut anyway so now she's now essentially killed a ton of the top leaders of the (laughs) of the drevlians and prince mal still doesn't know so what she says is (laughs) all right so this group of people there, this entourage you sent me, she sends another set of messages. So this, this entourage that you're sending me, they now are going to escort me back, but I got to honor my dead husband, my late husband. So let's meet at the city where you killed him, bring a bunch of mead. We'll have a big funeral feast, debauchery, and we'll all drink and I'll honor mm-hmm. him and then I'll marry you. And so he says, great. And so she arrives without the people he sent, but she makes some kind of claim that they lag behind and they've already been drinking. So they buy that. And so they hold a big celebration wherein her men have been ordered not to drink much. And they make sure that the Drevlians get as sloppy drunk as possible. And then when she thinks they're drunk enough, she goes all red wedding on them. Or in this case, red funeral. And they slaughter them all. 
Good God. What th- What is the body count now? I don't know, but it's pretty big. Like, we're probably talking about 40 people here. Now, I, I think... Now, I think the number's like in the thousands, supposedly, here. Yeah. You, that may or may not be true, but it's a lot of people. This then begins a whole bunch of war where now the Drevlians have been completely... They're on their back foot and she's slaughtering everyone around and going around to their cities. And finally, she gets to one city in particular. And it's the last thing. Mm-hmm. It's the last city. And they're just like, you know what? We will pay tribute. We don't care. We're sorry. Whatever you ask for. And she says, okay, I will be merciful and I will just demand tribute of three birds like doves and things from every household there and that's a great relief to them and so they sent three birds per household and uh, then she ties uh silver yes Is it sulfur? Uh, yes yeah. and they uh so then they all fly back to the city that they're from and they burn it to the ground and now having oh thus God. essentially genocided the drevlian she says oh my husband's death is finally avenged and that's the end of how she deals with the drevlians so that so get you a woman who's gonna genocide for you, I guess. Yes, the equal of the apostles. Now you must be wondering how does she become now, okay. a saint? <laughs> I yeah, this is I have concerns here. Like you know, the one side of me it's like okay, this is pretty badass, but the other side is like, how is this saint behavior, and how is this equal to the apostles? She's not a saint yet. So okay. what happens is you know they have this complicated relationship with the Byzantines. So mm-hmm. she goes to Constantinople and Emperor Constantine the seventh is very taken with her and he decides he wants to marry her. I have no idea if she was like super hot or what, but apparently everyone wanted to marry her. I'm sure he was terrified of her because of what she just did to the Drevlians. Well, it might have been, but he is emperor of the Byzantine Empire, so he's probably not so afraid of her uh, at this point. Maybe he also was thinking like, ooh, she's just defeated them. She'd be a, This would be a great yeah. pairing. Uh, Or maybe she was just super beautiful. Uh, It's unclear. So Emperor Constantine proposes to her. Turns out she doesn't want to marry him, but, you know, she... We know what she does. She pretends she wants to marry you, and then she genocides your people. She kills you, yes. Fortunately for him, she doesn't do that this time. She says, you know, I'm a pagan, and you're a Christian. And I've been learning all about your Christianity, and my understanding is that Christians are not allowed to marry pagans, and that would just not be appropriate. And he says... Well, how about if you uh, become a Christian then? You get totally baptized and everything. I can sponsor you. And oh, great. Uh, I'll do that. And so she converts to Christianity. He has her baptized and he sponsors her and acts as her godfather. And then he says, great, you're a Christian. Now we can get married. And she says, no, actually, now you're my godfather. Oh, that's incest. That's spiritual incest. Yes, so that would be yes, spiritual incest. Yes, I know incest. that from Catholicism. Exactly yeah. okay. right. And she's outsmarted him again. And I can't remember the exact quote, but basically his response to that is, dang, you got me. <laughs> He's not yeah. even mad. You know, it's one of these, I'm not even mad. I ain't uh, even mad at you. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she ends up not genociding the Byzantium or Constantinople as it was in the time of the Byzantines. Instead, she uh, manages to wiggle out of that proposal and uh, goes back. But apparently her conversion was real. It was a real, real one. And she really, really pushed Christianity. She wanted to convert all of her people. She didn't manage to do that, but she really made a lot of efforts in that way. And so from being a genocidal maniac to someone who then uses... (laughs) who uses her baptism to wiggle out of an uncomfortable proposal to then become really the mother of 
Christianity among her people. She gets to be mm-hmm. one of the great saints of both the East and the West. So she's a saint not because of committing a genocide. It's because of all the Christianity stuff she did after she was sanctified or after she yes. was Yes, for sure. Converted. I don't th- ever okay. recall either anyone in the West or the Eastern Church saying like, and right. our favorite thing about her is all the murder. Yeah, because <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's like the Thomas Beckett slash St. Augustine version of sanctification where, you know, you did a bunch of bad, questionable, sketchy stuff before, but you know what? You did some good stuff after you converted, so we're going to make you a saint, that sort of thing. It's like the Nobel Peace Prize. The easiest way to win the Nobel Peace Prize is to kill a whole bunch of people and then just stop killing them. And then once you stop killing them, then you win the Peace Prize. What is that quote? Death, I've become, death, I've become destroyer of worlds. That's the quote. So how about we get into some recommendations? Sure. What's your recommendation, Nina? Okay. So I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but this book... Rejected Princesses by Jason Porath. The full title is Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics. Absolutely fantastic if you want to hear brief but very interesting stories about various women throughout history who tend to not make headlines, so to speak. It has an entry on Olga of Kiev. And I'm going to show you if you can see through the phone real quick. This is her picture. Can you, okay, so how about if you get an image of that and we'll post it in the show notes? I will. Can we, can we do that? Okay, let's sure, do that. Sure, yeah, I sure will. Now, what it does is I, I scanned this uh, just a few minutes ago and I, I skimmed through it just before our talk, but I didn't want you to, I didn't want to spoil anything for myself, so I, I didn't really read too much. The only difference is it leaves out everything that you mentioned about her conversion to Christianity. It leaves that part out. It just keeps the whole birds with sulfur on them. And it, it reminds me of how much I hate birds. Have I ever told you how much I hate birds and how birds have attacked me all my life? <laughs> I knew how much you hated puppets, but birds, this is a new thing. You're... I hate puppets and birds, yes. So, so Big Bird from Sesame Street must just be the stuff of nightmares for you. Burn Sesame Street to the ground. I'm just going to leave it like that. But no, like when I was 10 years old, a Canada goose like attacked me on the dock at a lake by my house. And when I was in Ireland meeting family for the first time, a bird just crapped on me. (laughs) Like there was no trees. Did you see the bird? Are you certain it wasn't a leprechaun who is uh, giving the national national response that is offensive and engineer mike is going to be very angry that you mentioned leprechauns in ireland (laughs) i can see engineer mike gesticulating angrily uh yes but yeah no i was just sitting there minding my own business smiling and nodding and a bird crapped on me and to make matters worse i got so mad i like stood up and started swearing like i used all of my blasphemes Mm mm-hmm in very, very Catholic Ireland. Mm-hmm. And everyone, like all of County Wicklow turned and stared at me when oh. this happened too. Those are just two examples of birds attacking me. So this whole thing of Olga of Kiev using birds and then lighting them on fire, yes. burn down her enemies. It kind of, you know, I feel seen. I feel seen right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, if things had just worked out slightly differently in your life, that would have been you. Probably. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and truthfully, don't all of us just sit on the line between saint and genocidal maniac? Especially myself. In fact, I might have been Olga of Kiev in a previous life. Yes. All right. Well, my recommendation is far less fun, uh, but interesting. 
And it's something called the Primary Chronicle. And it was compiled by a guy the name of we call him. It's a little more complicated than this, so if any manuscript historians are out there, don't don't get upset with me for oversimplifying this. But we call Nestor the Chronicler. And it's number one, the main source of information that Vladimir Putin uses to make his territorial claims on Ukraine. But ironically, it is also the main source of information we have for Olga of Kiev. This is an example of how it, uh, of how it depends on how you want to look at it. And we'll have linked in the show notes to a PDF of an English language translation of it. Uh, one I mm-hmm. think is relatively accessible. Uh, so if people want to go through and see like, ooh, what was going on uh, in the early Middle Ages as read through the little bit later Middle Ages in Ukraine and uh, other parts of that area, Primary Chronicles, which you want to look at. So... We'll have a link in the show notes to that. Oh, excellent. We'll make sure to share that then. All right, Nina. So anything else for the good of the cause? Um, I just want to end this by saying, sharing a quote by uh, our boy of George. War, war is stupid and um, people are stupid. <laughs> people are stupid. And I think I can get behind that as much as possible. And I, I realize that now after how many, was this like three years of doing this podcast? The fact that I have spent so little time talking about living in Eastern Europe, King Mindaugas, Kleipeda, Memelberg, and all that. I feel like I've been withholding and I, I did not intend to. So my apologies to the listener if you feel like this is all new information. I was denied important, important information I needed to understand this podcast. Not only did you deny our listeners, but you've denied me, which I feel betrayed and attacked so there are a bunch of stories we'll see if they end up in the final version uh gentle listeners if you are interested in hearing some of the stories that we've referred to maybe engineer mike didn't put them in join the discord group and get in there and bother him for them and then maybe he will he'll break and uh put some of these in there for you maybe he will all right well west through hall nina west through hall doc pop medieval was recorded in our nerd haven studio Your hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. Our music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinra. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash popmedieval. Or visit our Discord channel using the invite link in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. So I was trying to figure out a way to do this that would be general and not overly political although we haven't talked about this i suspect that we are broadly on the same team uh, i think uh, so in, we in don't this, like war in this war though uh, probably would differ on this or that detail but europe is a patchwork of countries that used to control other lands and other countries so their their idea of well we used to control this land and, and that land it doesn't hold water if we're going to take this principle then since the golden horde controlled russia then China should control Russia. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. You, Nina, did you study at all about Olga of Kiev? I did. Okay, that is your jam. That is 100% your jam. Awesome.